Welcome to the Decast. Today we're going to talk about partners, partnering and partnerships. Design businesses are often started by friends and on a handshake. As they grow and deal with different partners, suppliers and clients, the need for contracts and legal structures grows. Whether it's shareholders, banks and clients, there's a minefield of issues. So today we've got Zim's own legal advisor here to discuss this with us and uh, share his experiences. Ryan, would you like to introduce James? Yeah, thanks Gideon. Um, so today we've got James Carney with us as a principal at Clendon's Lawyers in commercial and international property firm based in Auckland City. James has been practicing for 25 years and for many years has been the honorary solicitor for the Design Institute. James has provided legal advice to many Designers Institute members over the years. As part of Clendon's long-standing sponsorship with the Designers Institute, James frequently provides free consultations to DIN's members on legal issues. In addition to advising on visual arts and intellectual property matters, Clendon's provides legal and strategic advice to DIN's members on a variety of commercial issues, including joint ventures and project collaborations, contracting terms of trade, project disputes, employment law, and trade practices. Welcome to the DCAST, James. Thanks, guys. Great. Hey, uh, well, yeah, thanks again for, for joining us, James. Um, look, uh, this uh, DCAST, is, as we say, is all about the legal kind of aspects of, of the business structure. So I thought a good way to start would be, can you give us a bit of an overview of some of those key business documents, like agreements, contracts? Shareholders' agreements, constitutions, uh, and anything else I'm missing yet. Oh, sure. Look, there's there's many different types of, I guess, legal documents that um, people may encounter in the course of, of a business. Um, a large part of that will depend on on the structure of, of the partnership and, and what the parties are, are doing. Um, so, for example, if you're in, entering into a, a longer term partnership um, or joint venture with um, with other persons, then often that that might be a company. So you incorporate a company and you have um, the partners holding shares um, and there may well be a shareholders agreement and constitution uh, in that case. Um, there might be a partnership, um, in which case there's a partnership deed. Um, or there may be, even be a, a um, just an unincorporated joint venture between you know, two or more people. In each case, the, the key is to, to clearly um, agree the arrangements between the parties on key issues like contributions or what everyone's putting in. Um, expectations, um, so that's what everyone is getting out, but also um, what you expect the others to do, um, and also who owns things like intellectual property um, if the joint venture ends, uh, including the brand. So, so, so those are, um, I guess, common documents um, for those longer-term type partnerships um, and joint ventures. Where if it's a shorter-term uh, or a project-specific collaboration, uh, then um, some of the key issues there are um, contributions. Again, um, if the parties are preparing a, a joint tender, then, then who's, say, the project lead? Um, and, and other issues like, say, loyalty. Um, so making sure that each of your partners don't um, submit a, com a competing tender bid uh, behind the back of the others. Um, so, so in those circumstances, you're very much looking at some sort of consortium agreement um, or, or um, specific project agreement between the parties. Um, so, so those, I guess, are... are um, some of the examples of business documents, but they are very many and varied depending on the circumstances. I, I suppose the key ones would be uh, like a limited liability and a partnership document. What, what would what would the key differences be between those two? Like, I mean, why why would you? I know legal profession are big on partnership documents, whereas more I've seen from designers is like limited liability. 
Why yeah, well, the, the legal profession being um, generally or historically um, uh, partnerships is, is very much just a, the um, uh, result of the fact that until very recently, um, law firms were not allowed to be incorporated. Uh, so it's just very much um, the way it always was. Um, but um, in more recent years, we've seen things such as limited partnerships arise, um, particularly used, used in investment um, uh, structures. Um, and, um, and now law firms are entitled to be incorporated, so there are an increasing number of, of limited liability law firms, um, which have specific rules which attach to them. Um, so those, that's, that's really much a sort of historic um, uh, outcome. Um, the most common structure is, is a company. Um, and, and, and design businesses um, that would be far and away the most common um, uh, business, um, uh, I guess, vehicle adopted by the parties. It's reasonably well understood. Um, generally speaking, the parties can um, uh, can then have a shareholders agreement, which which um, regulates the uh, the conduct of of their um, uh, of their business um, and, and sets out some of those key issues I've mentioned earlier. Um, and you also have a, would normally have a constitution as well. Um, and then there are various reasons for having a constitution um, uh, in addition to a shareholders agreement. Now you, in law, you don't need to have a constitution, but it's, a, a, generally speaking, a very good idea. Uh, for example, um, there are certain types of indemnity insurance for directors um, uh, that, that can be very valuable to have. Um, but you can't take insurance out for directors unless you have a constitution which expressly permits that. So, um, so there are some some good reasons and um, why you'd want to have a constitution as well as a shareholders agreement. Yeah, we're going through B Corp certification at the moment, and one of those things is having a constitution. So, um, we're we're trying to cheat our way through it and use a templated document, but it's quite a deep and complex piece of, uh, you know, uh, uh, legal legalese. Can, can you tell me what a constitution? You know, you, you say that you need a constitution for insurance but what is the purpose of a constitution uh, well i guess if i can distinguish between a shareholders agreement and the constitution so the constitution um is um a publicly available document um it's regarded almost as a bit of a contract between the company and the shareholders um and, and so that's in addition to what the companies act and other relevant laws would impose in that or imply into that relationship um Shareholders agreement, uh, in contrast, is a confidential document, generally speaking, that's um, confidential only to the shareholders themselves and, 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 and uh, possibly the company. Um, and that sets out a lot more of the specific detail around um, you know, what the parties will be um, contributing. You might have things that such as dividend policies, um, specific obligations, responsibilities, um, down to you know, um, particular trading um, uh, protocols. Um, you might even append um, contracts or, or, or um, uh, you know, um, uh, um, employment agreements to that for the key mm. key persons, yeah. um, and and so that's yeah very much specific. But as I said, that's that's generally speaking not a publicly available document. Yeah. Uh, and as I said, for constitutions, um, look, there are you know, uh, and I gave the example of insurance as being one, and, and there there are a handful of other examples I could give you whereby, um, just given the, the technical nature of company law. Um, it's generally speaking a very good idea to have one, um, purely because um, uh, there are implications if you don't. Right. Okay. And you know, you, you, these are separate documents that, that you would get written specifically for your own uh, your own set of circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you generally sort of um, the, the main document and, and the more comprehensive document would generally be 
the shareholders agreement and you'd normally then fit a constitution around it it's important the two are are aligned you don't want to have um you know conflicts between them uh so um you'd normally prepare the two of them in concert um, what, what, you know, if you're starting out and you're, you're setting up a partnership and you're, you're building your shareholders agreement, what are some of the things that you you should agree on? Oh gosh, I guess it varies. But um, if I start at the basics, uh, and it's yeah. quite important actually. Um, so if I can start with the basics when it comes to shareholders agreements and sort of a conversation that um, should be having, had in every um, the start of every business, but quite often isn't, and that is. What are the parties um, hoping to achieve? What, what is the vision? What is the objective of the business? What do, what will they do, um, and where do they want to get to? Um, and it might seem rather fundamental, but um, when we're preparing a shareholders agreement, the way I generally like to do it is to prepare a bit of an agenda of what we think the key issues might be for that particular business, um, and then sit down around a table with the shareholders and their lawyers if, if, if they want to come, um, and have a chat through these issues. Um, and it, 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 uh, it, um, it's quite common that you get into that conversation and, and some differences do emerge as to what people think the business should be doing. Yeah. Uh, and it's really obviously essential that you get that out in the open at the start. Because um, you can imagine people, you know, once they start um, uh, getting in, you know, committing themselves to business, um, applying funds into the business and so forth. Um, and then they realize that they're not on the same page as their business partners. Um, so that can be an absolute disaster. So, so if I could start in terms of what you deal with in the shareholders agreement, what the objects of the venture are, um, and then I think you'd, you'd, you'd work through, I guess, a series of, of, um, of key issues from there, how the company's going to be managed um, as between the key persons, who does what, um, what each of the parties are contributing, um, uh, whether they might want to add more, um, uh, more partners moving forward, and if so, what are the protocols for that? Um, and, and I guess quite a few operational issues, the financials, whether the, the parties might operate on a budget, an annual, annual budget, um, or, or a, a, um, a little bit more free-flowing in terms of their, their um, business operations. And quite often in a shareholders agreement, you'll also have a, a list of key issues, which are sort of so fundamental that, that um, uh, regardless of, of you know, how many shareholders and, and the, the size of the shareholdings, um, you'd either need all the shareholders or at least a, a large proportion of them, maybe 75% or more, to agree before you could do certain key things. And they might be things such as, you know, winding up the business um, or um, even things like changing directors' salaries, um, uh, et cetera, so that everyone knows that, you know, these are the sorts of things that everyone, everybody needs to agree on or at least a, a sort of super majority of people um, before they can happen. So so I, I guess one point I'd like to stress about shareholders agreement as well is that they are incredibly flexible um, uh, um, uh, um, concepts. You, you, um, you know, I've, I've written a, a variety of shareholders agreements over the years, some a few pages, some a hundred pages. Um, it all depends on the circumstances, but they are an incredibly valuable um, asset for a business and for the partners to the business. Um, because of that flexibility and the fact is that again if you sit down at the outset and properly think about why are we doing this what do we hope to achieve out of it and then you can um, put in place some um, some fundamental agreements about those sorts of issues it just means that everybody can sort of um, confidently proceed with the adventure knowing that you know they've got those um, key agreements locked down 
um, ideally, you know, um, like like any good contract, you kind of put it in the bottom drawer and, and, and hopefully you never look, need to look at it again. Um, but, you know, it's there. Um, so so a, a, a good shareholders agreement does two basic things. Number one, it, it provides um, the right incentives um, uh, for people to, to um, work um, constructively and, and diligently in the business um, for mutual benefit. And it also creates the right disincentives for people um, so they don't do the wrong things. And that might include, um, you know, competing um, yeah. um, or, um, you know, taking opportunities that were designed for the, for the joint venture and, and, and um, taking them themselves. So, so, um, so, so there are, um, uh, as I said, you know, um, some considerable benefits that can come from shareholders agreements um, and, and not only telling you what you should do, but actually causing people to think, well, hang on, I better not do this. Um, because if I do, it will set in chain a, a course of action that I can't then control, which might lead with me lead to me being exited from the from the joint venture. Yeah, I, I want to just go back and just unpack a couple of things there. You, you talked about percentages of shareholders, and one of the things that I learned probably the hard way is that, that somebody who has a twenty six percent shareholder can block the the seventy four percent of shareholders because that you need a seventy five percent or more. Uh, and it's always something good because I don't think most people know there's all of these little little hooks, shall we say, that, that people who understand uh, the machinations of business can use against the more naive. Um, so, and that's, yeah, shareholding. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of get you to, to talk to, which is the idea that, that a shareholder's agreement is kind of like a prenup in the sense that you negotiate the divorce. When you're when you're in the honeymoon, rather than trying to negotiate it when you're when you're exiting, somebody is exiting the business. What are your yeah. thoughts on those two? Yeah, well, starting with the uh, the twenty six seventy four issue first. Um, yeah. There, in companies law, uh, there are um, some specific types of transactions that require what's called a special resolution, yeah. and unless your constitution um, alters that percentage, the default percentage is seventy five percent. Um, and that's that's important for as said, for specific transactions. So things like what you call a major transaction in companies law, uh, and that's something where, where you're, you're engaging in a, in a transaction which is, um, has a value of fifty percent or more of the company's net, uh, assets. So, um, uh, but they are also changing the constitution, uh, those sorts of things. So they're quite there's a, only a, only a quite a confined list of things, but they're the big ticket items, uh, and that's why the law carves them out and says like for those ones you need. 75% for everything else, for the vast majority of your decisions in a business, yeah, it's majority rules um, mm -hmm. in terms of um, both who gets to appoint the directors on the board um, and, and, um, and then it's the directors uh, who, of course, run the company. The, the, um, where you need a shareholder's resolution is for those, those specific types of transactions, as I mentioned, things such as uh, major transactions, um, constitution changes, etc. So, so they are quite confined. Um, mm. but in my experience, um, whilst those those um, percentages can be a bit of a fish hook, um, there are other fish hooks as well um, coming from different percentages. So, um, uh, under companies law now, um, any shareholder having I think it's five percent or more um, uh, can can ask for an audit of a business. An audit can be a hell of a expensive thing to do, mm. um, and, um, uh, and and that's important because you know when shareholders have a bit of dispute and they get crafty lawyers like us involved, um, so quite often that's a case of how can I cause maximum pain on the others so they you know do mm. what I want them to do, 
And so things like audits can then be used, uh, almost weaponized. Um, uh, so, um, so these sorts of things, you know, can be um, with a fair bit of, you know, foresight considered up front, speci- specifically if you're, particularly if you're going to have employee share option plans or schemes. Yeah. Um, because often they, they might result in employees having a few percent of shares here or there, um, but they can sometimes get over those sorts of lower thresholds. They wouldn't normally necessarily approach 25%, but they might get over those lower thresholds. So there's a whole bunch of different thresholds that need to be considered, I guess, um, uh, when when carefully constructing a, a shareholders agreement and constitution at the outset. So on the second question, which is, is yeah, as you said, the... the, the um, uh, what the what an agreement might provide for um, should the parties decide to part ways, or at least one or two of them decide to. Um, uh, now that that's, there is considerable value in that, um, as I mentioned earlier. Firstly, a shell agreement can stop people falling into dispute because it sets those right disincentives for misbehaviour. But if parties, for, for legitimate reasons, decide they want to part ways, then a, then a carefully considered shell agreement can be very valuable in, um, in, in providing the process by which it takes place. Now, quite often um, uh, there can be um, a, uh, a joint venture where there's no single party that has a majority shareholder. Um, and in that case, you know, it's not a case of the, you know, the majority can't then say, well, I'll take out the minority um, because you might have, say, um, 250% shareholders or four that have a you know, quarter each. Um, or these sorts of things, and as I said, no no individual shareholder has a majority. So the question is, well, what's what's the most appropriate way of resolving a dispute between the parties in those circumstances? And that this is something that that does require quite a bit of careful analysis um, uh, when when preparing shareholders agreement. But you know that the, the time spent doing that will repay you tenfold or more. In fact, I'd say a hundredfold because um, having been involved in shareholders disputes. Um, uh, quite a number of them over the years. Um, if you don't have a carefully defined process or shell agreement in place, um, all roads lead to the High Court. Um, there are specific laws um, in the Companies um, Act and, and elsewhere that provide potential remedy for things such as oppressed shareholders, but they're generally very discretionary in the hands of the of the court. And so there's no certainty about how any of those court processes might, it's not like a breach of contract claim where you know, okay, well, if I can prove this, then this, this should be the outcome in terms of my damages. Um, uh, instead, in the shareholder situation, the only certainty is um, horrendous legal expense. Um, everything else is up in the air. Yeah. Uh, so um, having a carefully considered dispute resolution process can be incredibly valuable. Um, and, and there are all manner of, of um, uh, options that have, that have um, sprung up over the years. Um, uh, and obviously, things such as mediation can be useful if, if they're, they're um, if all parties wish to participate. Of course, in mediation, I would never compel parties to because um, uh, it really needs to be a voluntary um, process. Um, but beyond that, um, uh, you would have um, well, you have fancy phrases like Russian roulette and all manner of other um, ways that, that people can try and break an impasse or a dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I like to do is is um, try and put in place. A dispute resolution mechanism which doesn't necessarily favor the party with the deepest pockets um, but is a bit more equitable now that's tricky because frankly there's no real way of achieving that um, ultimately if people have you know um, a large amount of wealth compared to the others then then they'll find ways to you know to, to drag things out and, and make life miserable but um, uh, having the ability for parties to make um, offers to um, to buy or sell shares at a certain price 
can be useful because it focuses the mind. If you have to make an offer which says, okay, well, I'm prepared to buy at this price, but also I'm offering to sell at this price, um, then it tends to, to make them pick a fair price as opposed to just picking an a, a artificially low or high price. It's a bit like so, that thing when you're a brother and sister and you, you, know, you go, one, one of them you, you know, cuts, the, cuts the cake and the other one chooses. I think that's kind of a, <laughs> a good right. way of thinking about it, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, so there are um, a bunch of, um, of options there, but the key, I think the key thing is just to have that conversation at the outset. It all depends on, again, if you have one majority shareholder and, and, and you know, some smaller ones, then quite often it's appropriate um, uh, for the majority shareholder to have the right to buy the others out of market value if they can't work it out. Um, but in, in most other circumstances, as I said, particularly where there's no single majority, uh, it really does, it does require a bit of careful thought as to, well, how would we work it out um, uh, if, um, if we, you know, we couldn't get on? Yeah, and there's all sorts of clauses like tag-alongs and drag-alongs and, and all of those sort of things. I mean, the, the complexity of, of shareholders' agreements and contracts is, is, is kind of almost infinite, isn't it? Well, again, it comes back to that, that flexibility, though. I, you know, I regard that as as, um, uh, as beneficial, really, yeah. because that, you know, um, if you carefully consider those sorts of issues, then you can get a, you know, a, a really you know, good fit-for-purpose document which you know will help and guide the parties, you know, moving forward indefinitely. Really, and I think probably the, the, the simplest outtake of this is, is that you, you know, when you're when you're setting up a business, getting legal advice and getting independent legal advice for each partner uh, in the process is really important because this will set the tone for how the business is. I mean, one of the things which, when you were talking about getting everybody in the same room to talk about what the business was, one of the hardest things I think people have to talk about is money, right? And, and, and the liability for that money, where you when you start getting into personal guarantees, like who's going to guarantee the actual um, finance of the business so that when it when it needs cash flow, who puts that in and, and, and where does that come from? Where does bank uh, credit come from? And things like that. So defining all of these points is something that you really need to consider upfront and discuss with your partners rather than just assume. And when it all turns to custard, you spend a lot of money. Uh, um, keeping lawyers busy. Uh, mm. Is there what um, uh, are the common issues that you, you've dealt with for, for design? Uh, the legal issues, not necessarily you know in, in partnerships and things like that. I mean, we, we've, we've briefly you and I have touched on um, intellectual property, and, uh, and that is a big subject in itself that we want to kind of come back and, and, and do devote an episode to. Um, but but you know that. Getting at those intellectual property rights in within partnerships and with clients and with staff is quite important, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I guess um, in terms of I guess the more common issues we would see with um, designers um, and their businesses from a legal perspective, look, lack of awareness of IP law, especially for for um, newer members of the profession. Um, you know, the, the basic issue of, of who owns what, um, particularly between you know, the design business and their clients. Um, I mean, there are still um, uh, you know, young designers coming out that, that are not aware of the commissioning rule uh, under the copyright laws, um, which is which is fundamental, and, and I'd certainly commend um, anybody um, reading this um, to to check out the article um, on our website, which talks about the commissioning law law, because um, that's that's fundamentally important. The moment any unique work is created, if you've been paid um, or even promised to be paid um, for that work, then the moment it's created, copyright vests um, and whoever paid for it or asked said they'd pay for it. Um, uh, and the perverse thing about you know, some designers that come to us is that they they, think, they come to us and say, well, I haven't been paid for a job, 
Um, but the good thing is I've still got the IP, to which I say, well, unfortunately, no, you don't have the IP um, and you still haven't been paid. And at, at best, it's an uneconomic debt recovery exercise. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, intellectual property is a, is a major. Um, I guess if I think about some of the other common issues, I guess it's lack of a clear agreement on some of the key issues we've touched on with the business partners. So things like contributions, expectations. Um, another one is, is using um, poor or no terms of trade. Terms yeah. of trade are really, really important. Um, they really are. Um, uh, and I guess that, that they're a core part of, of, a, of a broader issue as well, which I'd describe probably as risk management. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the key things that you can do to ensure that the designer, say, won't lose their house if something goes wrong. Um, you know, those are those are the big ticket items. Uh, so um, other than that, um, I think um, some of the things that, that get um, uh, designers in trouble can be, um, say, if they make commitments to property leases and, and get personal guarantees, um, obviously there can be bank funding and security arrangements, uh, contributing intellectual property into joint ventures, um, and then exiting and, and losing that IP when, when they didn't expect to. Um, we often have uh, disputes about uh, people putting portfolios out there and the question is, well, are they allowed to use that work in their portfolio? Um, and sometimes it's not entirely clear. Um, and other, other circumstances, I guess, where, where, where designers might um, sign business or joint venture documents which carry uh, high risk and, and require um, pretty significant ongoing commitment but don't actually create any long-term benefit or, or, or wealth for them. Um, uh, they probably do for other people. Um, but not for them. So it's really just the case of, of trying, um, I guess, early advice um, mm. on those sorts of issues um, from those of us who have sort of earned our grey hairs, if I can say it like that. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that, that, that the, the important I take is, is to get advice on, on anything where you're, where you're signing. And something I learned earlier is that a personal guarantee is a very, it's something that you need to weigh out very carefully and, and um, businesses uh, or landlords and that will, will often ask for that, but it's not necessary if you have a limited liability company, um, as you try and get the company to guarantee as much as possible. Because you're protected as a, as a shareholder and as, uh, in theory, as a director, um, and the company is liable for its debts rather than you being liable for its debts, which is one of the advantages of having this business structure, correct? Oh, that's correct. And, but sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to avoid personal guarantees for yeah. things like, um, uh, say, bank facilities um, uh, and indeed for property leases. Um, yeah. But a couple of things I'd mention there. Number one um, is that um, these these sorts of entities, particularly banks, will ask for everything uh, in terms of security up to and, and including your firstborn. Yeah. Um, and you actually need to, and, and you know, again, a good commercial uh, legal advisor um, can, can help with this say well hang on we think this and this is actually plenty of security for you you don't need these other things mm. um and have a have an informed discussion um with the lender about that or indeed the landlord the second thing you can, thing you can do is you can actually cap it so you can say okay well, i'm going to personally guarantee this lease but say if there's three of us then my personal guarantee is capped at say 50 grand mm. um, or indeed the same for a bank facility uh, so you can actually um you know um, manage your liability that way and that's really important too so otherwise it's a bit open-ended um, the, the other thing I'd mention about um, these sorts of exposures is that you quite often get sent terms of trade by, um, uh, say, for designers, product suppliers, um, um, other other um, participants in a project, um, and, and those terms of trade might build into them a personal guarantee. And those are the sorts of things you do need to be careful of, and you, you shouldn't be providing. Um, so that's, that's just personal guarantee by itself, is it? 
Yeah, well, no, it's actually built into, say, terms of trade for other businesses. Um, and that's permissible. Um, it needs to be uh, called out reasonably clearly in the terms. But quite often you might see a document that says that, okay, here's our credit application, for example. And it might say, and, you know, just before you sign, by signing this, you agree um, that you're personally liable as well as the business. And I think you need to, at that point in time, say, well, hold on. Do I agree to personally guarantee this? Why am I personally guaranteeing it? Um, you know, um, and have that conversation probably both internally and then with the supplier um, and say, look, you know, I, I don't agree with that. Um, do you want my business, yes or no? Yeah. Yeah, always negotiate on those sort of things. Yeah. Hey, so I think that, that's, that's you know, quite a lot there to, uh, for everybody to um, digest. Uh, one last question for you. What's the best legal advice you reckon you've ever given? Crikey. Um, look, I guess it's it's um, uh, probably um, on that risk management side of things, um, uh, uh, advising, um, yeah, helping people um, uh, structure their businesses such that, you know, um, their main assets, things like their house uh, and indeed the things that they're their family, their you know, partner and, and children, if they have any, um, you know, um, will rely on um, for their livelihoods, um, uh, are safe um, and protected. So that's a combination of things. Normally, it's, it's your terms of trade, uh, it's insurance, um, and it's, it's structuring your own assets and possibly using a trust or otherwise um, to um, to make sure that you know that you achieve that that sort of safety, such so, so that all the things you've worked really hard for over many years are secure and they're not at risk by that, you know, one in a 20 year event that, you know, might be not your fault at all. Um, you just run into one, you know, unfortunately, an unscrupulous person um, and you don't realize they're unscrupulous until it's too late. Um, and um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're getting sucked into some legal proceeding which has, you know, damages claims which look like a, a telephone number mm. um, with a dollar sign in front of them. So. Um, so yeah, it can be pretty scary. Um, so I guess the sorts of things in terms of the advice we've given that that's pretty fundamental. Um, we really do it like advising um, designers um, when they form and grow their businesses from early on. And if I think what one thing I've really noted is if they use good contract terms and other legal tools, and they build a valuable business um, with a brand and a client database, and then quite often if they've structured it and set it up properly from the get go. Um, then, then they're able to sort of sell um, and they get um, a life-changing financial windfall. Um, and that's fantastic to see, you know, especially from end to end. And, and much of the value in the business um, that is in the eyes of the, the, the acquiring party is actually the legal and business practices they adopted early in the business life because it meant that the business was relatively risk-free, it meant the intellectual property ownership was clear, it meant that things like, you know, the ability to transfer the database was clear from a privacy perspective and other things like that. So so I think that, that that's that's a really, you know, um, beneficial um, uh, and pleasing pleasing type of advice we give and, and it's great to see that that come to fruition. Great. Hey, thanks so much, James. It's been, it's been very enlightening. Um, I think I've learned quite a bit over this and so hopefully everybody else has. Uh, thanks again for your time. No yeah, problem. thanks very much for joining us, James. Some great nuggets in there for partners, partnering and partnerships. You've been listening to a Designers Institute decast and we'll see you again next time.